We're going to look at God's Word now if you move back to Psalm 19. If you have a marker, you can keep it in Romans 1, because we will be coming back to it. But we're going to look at Psalm 19. Let's read our thoughts at the beginning of the psalm. A psalm of David. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Do you believe in God? Not any God, but the one true, exalted, holy, and righteous creator of man and woman. The word of God tells us that God is infinite and eternal and transcendent, and that he is spirit, that he cannot be seen with the eye or picked up with any of our natural senses. He's unlike us and beyond us, though he made all things. And we cannot reach him by ourselves. We cannot take a ruler or a calculator or any machine to test and find God that way. He is so great and unlike us that for us to know anything about him at all, he must reveal himself. He must unveil himself and show us something about him or we can never know him. And you were born into this world and you have to deal with that situation. A world and a universe that is made that you live in and you are aware of the glory of all that is made. And you think to yourself, who made this? Is there a God or is there not a God? Well, you need to know that for you to know God, he must reveal himself. And that's what this psalm is about. It's about God revealing himself. God has written two books. God has two books in which we can see him. One book is the book of the creation itself, and the other book is the scriptures of God. One of the books contains all that God has made and that can be seen, and the other book is what God breathed and spoke to man to reveal himself and reveal his son. And in both of these books, we can see the glory of God and who he is. This is sometimes called the general revelation and the special revelation. The general one being all that he's done and made that can be clearly seen by all men. The special revelation when God speaks to specific men and women in recording the scriptures and still when man picks up the scriptures, when God by his power and spirit speaks to us, that is the special revelation. 
One is seeing what someone has done. You can, you can see um, Washington DC. You can see the home of the President of the United States. You can see the Secret Service guarding him. You can see Air Force One. You can see the seal of the President on many government buildings throughout the United States. That's the general revelation that shows us that there is a President. But you don't receive direct letters from the President, and you're not allowed to just walk in and speak with him unless you know him. It's the same with God. There is a general, undeniable testimony to the reality of God that can be clearly seen. But then in the Scriptures, we have the direct writing from God as a person to our souls. And that is what saves us. That psalm, this psalm is about uh, these two revelations and books. In verse 1 to 5, you have the first book, that the creation reveals something. Verses 1 to 5. And then verses 7 to the end are the second book. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. That is a reference to the Bible. And that's what David's writing about. And David puts the psalm together, and it's a beautiful psalm, because he can see that there is a God from what he looks at. But he's also received the living word of God, and he delights in his law, his testimony, and the revelation of his scriptures. And David composes this beautiful psalm uh, that we can sing and read, and that shows us the two places where God reveals himself. And that should alert you immediately as you look at this psalm. Um, alert you immediately to the reality of God. It's not, um, if you read the psalm yourself, you may not pick up on this. But think about how unlikely and unusual it is that David even wrote this psalm. David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And in verse 5, the sun, S-U-N, comes out and it sheds light on the world like the word of God. Notice, David doesn't think that the sun is a god. He doesn't think the moon is a god. He doesn't think the stars are gods. Now that is impossible for the day in which David lived. 800, 900, 1000 BC, every single culture in the world, when this psalm was written, believed that the sun and the moon were gods. David should be in darkness. The Israelites should be in darkness. The Israelites should be the same as all the other countries. When man is in that darkness and doesn't have a revelation, he presumes that the animals and the stars are gods. Now, you, if you're a skeptic, you tell me how it's possible that the king of Israel, just through his own mind and imagination, if he's just made this up, you explain to me how it's possible for him to know that the lights in the sky are not gods. Actually, they are just physical and they were made by one God. David doesn't believe there are many gods. Everyone else, for thousands of years in his part of the world, 
believed there were thousands of gods. And you go into Jerusalem and speak to David and you find someone who is a genius, basically. Someone who is the greatest philosopher of his age. How did he know? How could he know against all the pressure of all the cultures? How could he know there was only one God? The answer is clear. He knows there's one God, not because he's inventive or a good songwriter. He knows there's one God because God has revealed himself to David. That's how he knows. You should take that, even if you're in skepticism, you should take that immediately and wrestle with that. How is that even possible? And if God revealed himself to David, and among all those nations created that true knowledge of the one God there, then that same God is revealing himself to you in the same way. David looked at the stars and the sun, and he received the word of God from the church of his day. And the Spirit of God moved him to write scripture, and you have what David has. You can see all that David saw, and you have the same word that David has. So you shouldn't be a skeptic or an agnostic, and you shouldn't say, we don't know if there is a God. We do know that there is not even a God, but we know who he is, because he has revealed himself. David knew who he was, and you have all the same information that David had. Now, what does God reveal? It says that he reveals his glory. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the expanse declares his handiwork. Even if we don't have a Bible, what is God revealing in the creation? He's revealing his glory. And David is thinking of all that he can see, especially above him in space. He looks up and he sees all the stars and the different lights and their different sizes. And that some of them move, some of them don't move. And that when he looks up at night, he says... Night unto night they reveal knowledge. When he looks up at night, he sees this unending expanse. Even in his primitive world, he looks up and he is in awe at what he sees. And he ought to be. The expanse of space that goes on and on and on. And these lights that are indescribable. Where did they come from? Why are they there? Why are they beautiful? Why are they filled with mystery? And why, when I look up, am I confronted with the thought, what is this all for, and what am I, and why are these here, and where did they come from? He's looking up at all of that. And he concludes that this shows him that there is a glorious creator that made all of these things. And how much more for us today? How much more for us? Our sight and faith of the, in the creator should be thousands of times stronger in one sense than what even David had because of the huge um, and rapid progress especially in the 20th century of our ability to see more than what David saw he could see in the, with the naked eye about 3,000 stars at night and he could see the moon and its beauty and wonder 
And then when the sun rose in the morning, he could see its glory and heat and power and that it lit up everything on the earth. And he knew that everything he could see was taking life from that sun. We can see a lot more and have far more understanding. And it is remarkable that though we know more, we live in an age of a lot more opposition and skepticism and unbelief, even, than David lived or when Christ was alive or when the Reformers were alive. We um, live in an age of atheism, of aggressive hatred for any thought that there is a God who made all of this. But it shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be so at all. We can see a lot more. We know what the sun is. We know what the moon is. We know why it shines. We know what makes the sun shine. It is a large composite nuclear bomb, basically, with hundreds, the power of hundreds of thousands of nuclear weapons within it, with nuclear fusion that is emitting an unimaginable amount of energy and heat. We know what it is. And when you look at pictures of the sun burning, it is awesome. But the sun is quite small compared to what we know now. We, with our telescopes and our Hubble telescopes, can view stars and galaxies far beyond our own one that make our sun look like a pea. These massive bodies that burn and that continue to burn and will burn for billions of years. They wouldn't actually burn for billions of years because the Lord will return. But if they were left to themselves, they have enough mass in them to burn for billions of years. We should be in awe of this. It is so easy to pull down our perspective to this little church or our little lives and the little duties we have to do and to be completely cut off from the picture that God's put before us to constantly communicate to us how small we are and how great he is, how easy it is to forget to look at these things. They are wonderful. Our Milky Way galaxy has 200 billion stars in it. 200 billion massive burning bodies. Where did they come from? And we look up at the stars and think they're quite near in a sense because we can see them. But it's almost incomprehensible how far away they are. The nearest star to the, the solar system we live in, the nearest star is 25 trillion miles away. The nearest one. And it's quite small. The great galaxy that we can see with the naked eye the Andromeda galaxy, a beautiful spiral galaxy that can be seen in the sky. If we were to travel to it, even with the fastest technology that we have up there right now, there are things we've put up there that are going around 40,000 miles an hour on their way around our solar system. That's very fast. But even if we sent one of those to the Andromeda galaxy, it would take millions of years for it to reach the Andromeda galaxy. Millions of years without stopping before it even came close to reaching it. 
the edge of our universe is 13 billion light years away. And I can't give you a number for the amount of years it would take to get to the edge of our universe. These things are incredible. They are amazing. They are beyond us and above us. And our minds cannot get wrapped around the immensity and the distance and the sheer amount of things that exist in that space. And David says that the cosmos declares the glory of God. It's not only Christ and his grace and him turning the water into wine or raising the dead, as immediate and glorious as that is, God has surrounded us and saturated us with instances of his glory that that confound our minds. And it's the invitation of Scripture to us, even as Christians, to engage these things. How much we shrink God, even as believers, we can shrink him because we forget and we're numb and our minds are dull as to what's really there. I'm not telling you theories about what might be there. These are things that are just there. They're, they're undisputed. And how much it should show us the greatness of God. So David says here that this is declared. It is communicated. The heavens are telling us something, verse 1. And the expanse is declaring something, verse 1. And verse 2, day to day they are speaking. They pour forth speech. There is a declaration. And what is that declaration? It declares to us the glories of God. Now what, what is the glory of God? It's his attributes. It's each thing that we can describe about God when we think about God and when the scriptures reveal God. We we know certain characteristics that he has, that he's eternal, that he's infinite, that he's powerful, that he that he's holy. All of these things are things we know about God. And David's saying some of these things can be known just by looking out there. Even without the Bible, these things can be seen by the things that are made. So when he is declaring his glory through what he's made, here's a few things that he is declaring. He's declaring his power. Because when we look up, it's there, it exists. And we ask ourselves, why does it exist and where did it come from? And how much power is needed to create such a thing? The amount of energy that's in the universe. The amount of energy that's in the sun. There are stars um, that we can see that you could fit sometimes a million of our suns into. They are huge. And we cannot even think about how much energy is in them. And when, when I come across these facts, as I've done at various points in my life, and I'm told something like that, the first thing I think is, how is that even possible? And where did it come from? It could not have been the Big Bang. It could not have, it could not have come into being out of nothing by itself. These things are filled with power. 
You can run whole cities on the sun's power just by receiving some of its light. What's it like inside the sun? Well, when we ask where did it come from and did it come from nothing, the Bible says it did come from nothing in that sense. It was created from nothing by the energy and the power of God speaking. If, the, if you look at these stars that dwarf our own sun and they burn with immense power, what must my father be like? If he, if he can handle speaking and be near such a furnace of power and glory, if that's something that he, he sketches in the afternoon for fun, what is he like? And as a Christian, I find that refreshing because it resets my Christian life every time I consider it. Every time I lower God to my own standards, all I need to think is, if my father is more fierce and glorious and powerful than one of these stars, I better be careful and I better lower myself and I better praise his glorious name. If one of these stars came near us, it would change our behavior and yet we act like God is benign. If God makes these things, what is he like? He is powerful. He is eternal, infinite. When we look up at the vastness of this expanse that David says, elsewhere he says, he stretches out the heavens like a tent. Look at the size of the whole thing. Billions of light years across. It's unimaginable how far away it is. It makes us seem less than insignificant. We can't even comprehend the immensity of this home that God has placed us in on our tiny little rock. It is huge. And I ask myself, well, how, how vast is God if he's beyond that? And as the scriptures say, he places the universe on the palm of his hand. How vast is he? The one we come in here to hear about and to worship as we sing our psalms, do we sing to him as though he is that great, that large, that infinite? He, he is so infinite, there's nothing I can say about it. We just have to bow down and be quiet and glorify him. There's nothing we can say about how large and infinite God is. It defies description. He is awesome. He is above it and beyond it. If the universe is there, that means God is looking at it and it's existing before him like that. And he is beyond it. You can't just poke around in the universe and find God. He is beyond it, above it. He's in control of it and he tells it what to do. And then there's his wisdom. The wisdom that can build these things and stretch out a cosmos. The wisdom that creates laws that are fixed and that govern the cosmos we live in. That he created the law of gravity. It wasn't there before. He created the constants that govern all of the universe. All the electromagnetic forces in the universe, all of the atoms, all of the forces that bind it together and pull it apart 
and that hold it in place as it stretches out and expands. Even empty space, we think there's nothing there, but when you actually look inside it, a little cube of empty space, there's a whole lot of things going on that we can barely detect, but they're there. And all of them are governed by laws that God created. So that his wisdom is, he is he's a mathematician that we can barely even conceive of. That it's not that he learned it from a book and that he can do it. He, he thought it all up. And I want to be reverent here, but for fun. He thought these things up. They're not imposing to him and he has to follow them. He thought, we need gravity. How exactly will I build gravity? And he, he drew it out and he said it and it works and it remains and there's nothing we can do about it. All of the math and all of the laws that govern the whole thing. He built it all. And that means that he's sovereign. His power, eternity, transcendence, and wisdom mean that he's sovereign. It will do what he says it will do. It will declare who he is. And us, as tiny creatures, our attempts to get... God to change who he is or change his laws or to to forget about our sin or to deal with us differently are futile. He will not move. We are not in a discussion with God. We are in a creature-creator relationship with God. This is your God and my God. And I rejoice being able to tell you that. It fills my heart with joy even describing these things because this is our God. And he is great in power and he is displaying his glory in the heavens as david says he reveals his glory though and um, not just in those big things that we see but in the world around us too and in our own bodies and these things paul says that his invisible attributes we read it they are clearly seen by the things which are made that's anything that's made david is particularly wanting to sing here about the expanse he sees. But he says elsewhere, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We sang that he makes the grass grow and he feeds the raven and the deer and all these animals. And when we look, not just at what's out there, but when we look at the animal kingdom and the thousands of animals and the way they behave and the interesting things that their bodies can do and their color, God created color from nothing. There was no color before. He thought color up. And he built it into these animals and they all behave in different ways and they're fascinating to watch. And he put them in the garden with Adam and Adam was amazed and studied these animals. We look at them now and they, it's not only the cosmos that's speaking, you, you can look at a leopard and it's communicating the glory of God, his design and his wisdom in building it. We build cars and buildings and we're very impressed by engineers and people that have advanced in their professions. And that's right. But this is, that's nothing compared to what God has built. So Bill Gates may be very intelligent and smart. And Steve Jobs may have been a great innovator. But these men were nothing. They never built a leopard. They never built an elephant. They never built an animal. It's amazing. And in the 20th century, we discovered that our God 
didn't make these animals simple. Darwin thought when you would cut open an animal, as you went deeper and deeper, it would become more simple. That's what the whole theory of evolution was based on. And lo and behold, we found out that when we cut open the cell of an animal, there is a chemical factory inside the cell and a language and a code that builds all of these parts and colors and capabilities and that the animals can change rapidly and adapt to all that's around them. It's amazing. The heavens declare the glory of God, but so does the DNA of an animal declare that God is to be feared. If God can make something so small, intricate, and profound to live for years inside an animal or a person, and for it to work, then I better step back and say, this is someone to be taken seriously. If he puts so much thought into that, when I stand before him, what am I? And that takes us to the last thing there, us, us, our bodies. David said in the psalm we sang, that we, uh, the psalm we sang, what is man that you are mindful of him? Our bodies, our DNA, our minds, our sight, our organs, our bones. These things are intricate factories with millions of processes going on inside them all of the time. And we just carry them around as though they're normal. We are so dull in our minds. Even right now, as we look at each other, there are things going on. There is light going inside your eye and mine, and a miracle is taking place. That there are millions of cells at the back of your eye that are constantly taking the light and transferring it into a chemical language and sending it to the brain so that you can see me. We feel so dull and so sinful and we're dying creatures and we become sick. And we can, we can feel like that, just a lump of flesh. Yet there is a message within it all. Even within all of the corruption, there is a message that that's not the way it always was and that's not where we came from. We're not meant to die. We're constantly experiencing miracles. And the heavens declare the glory of God, but so does your body constantly. It is speaking to you. When you hold up your hand and look at it and move your fingers, there is a, a miracle taking place. That you can even do that. And it says to you, you were made by God. You are in the image of God. So it is declared, David says. It is declared. What does man do with all of that? When it is declared? Well, there is one thing we need to understand. is that man knows this. Man knows this. Day unto day, verse 2, it pours forth speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. Knowledge. David is telling us there that man and woman looks at all of these things and they know. They know about it, 
and they know the implications of it. So you may say, I don't know if there's a God, and I don't know where this comes from. But God says, yes, you do. You know. You know. Let's um, spend the rest of our time in, in Romans 1. If you turn to Romans 1, Paul gives us a commentary, really, on this psalm. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you're reading it, you can see this. If you're listening, listen to the words I'm picking out of Romans 1. As God tells you this. This is what God says about what you know. Everyone in this room. In Romans 1.20, God says this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. They are clear, these attributes. Everything I described there to you, all of the things above us, all of the things in the animal kingdom, all of the things that God's created, everything in your life and everything in your body, God says that it's clear. He's not playing tricks on us. He's not playing a game. He's, he's not only giving us clues. He says it's clear. And Paul knows it's clear. And he tells us, that it is so. That's Romans 1, uh, 20. They have been clearly seen and have been understood, verse 20, through what has been made. Man knows something about this and he understands something about this. So all of us in this room, when we look at one another, look at our bodies and look at the cosmos, we all know and understand the implications of what that means. We know something and we understand something. Verse 21, Paul says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Man knew there was a God. He knew it at the beginning. He's known it periodically throughout history. And when you're born and you first start to learn and think and look around and your parents tell you there's a God and we are Christians, you know it's innate to your nature as an image bearer of God. Paul says, you know, you knew there was a God. If you don't think there's a God now, or you don't believe in Christ now, that's something you've learned. That isn't what you originally thought. You knew that there was a God, verse 21. And verse 28, and just as they did not like or see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. They knew God, but they didn't want to retain that knowledge. They didn't want to keep it or accept it. Now, all of this tells us that there, there is a reception going on. That the heavens and the world declare and speak the glory of God and all of his attributes to us. And we hear it. We understand it somewhat. And we know, we, it comes into us, it's not out there. Every man and every woman is receiving that. It's not hidden. That's why the translation of the psalm was wrong, when it says they have not heard. Paul says they have. We're all without excuse, because God is telling us all of these things. We know, we clearly see, 
but we don't want to retain God in our knowledge. Why is that? Why do we do that? Paul knows the answer to that question. And it's um, in verse 18 of Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The reason there are atheists and the reason you doubt the gospel and the reason you doubt the reality that there is only one true Jehovah who you must love and believe in. Listen to Paul, my friend. The reason that you doubt that and that you're even maybe even turning against that, it's because you're suppressing something. It's seen. It's clear. It comes to you. You receive it and even understand part of it. But Paul says you don't like it. The word here for suppressing the truth means that you lay it down and you sit on it to crush it. You you sit on it to hold it down and you don't want to look at it. It's not that it's not there. You may be saying, I'm considering atheism. I, I'm not sure if the Bible is true. And this is a it's a very logical thing I'm thinking through. And these are just honest questions I have. But actually, you, you know what the truth is and you're sitting on it. You're pretending like you haven't seen it, but you saw it, and for some reason you don't want it, so you suppress the truth. That's what atheists do. That's what Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and uh, Lawrence Krauss, probably one of the most famous, famous atheists in the world today, the physicist from Arizona, all of these men have polluted the minds of an entire generation in the last 15 years. And an entire generation of college students have embraced atheism and an anti-God agenda and transgenderism and all these things because of the writings of these men. And these men say, if you showed me proof, I would believe in God. I look up, I look around, I look within, and there's explanations for it all. God is stupid, they say, because if he was real, he would reveal himself. But what Richard Dawkins is lying to you and I about is that he has clearly seen that there is a God. He has understood that there is a God. And he decided at one point in his life to sit on that truth. And he is sitting on it even now. And he'll be sitting on it probably until the day he dies. So he tells you there's no evidence. But that's because he's hiding it from you and he's sitting on it. And he's lying to you. Richard Dawkins wasn't born an atheist. Richard Dawkins was brought up in the Church of England by two Christian parents. He wasn't born an atheist. He became an atheist when he was a teenager because he decided there didn't, he didn't want there to be a God. Is that you? Do you not want this God to exist? Why does Richard Dawkins do that and why do, why do you do that if you're doing it? Why are you doing that? Paul says that you don't like it. And the reason you don't like it is because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 18. That's where atheism comes from. That's where the liberal gospel that hates the judgment of God and doesn't want God to be holy and thinks that everyone will be saved and that man isn't very sinful. The reason all of these false truths exist is only for one reason. It's very simple. Because God is revealing his wrath from heaven against ungodliness. 
The heavens declare his glory, but they tell us that there's something wrong. We die. We see terrible calamities and uh, destructions and wrong things all around us. Within that beautiful picture, there are all of these things that make us uncomfortable because we are ungodly. We are sinful. We like what is evil. Even the Christian has that in them. The flesh wants its selfishness and it, to make itself a god and to worship self and to live for pleasure and physical lusts. That's what we want. And we know, we constantly argue with ourselves to tell ourselves it's okay to be like that, but we know we are not godly. And we look at the glory of what's around us and we hear the gospel being preached and somebody is telling us that you are wrong and God is righteous and will judge that. And we say, I don't, I don't want that. I don't like that. I don't like the taste of that. So the issue is not whether God has made it clear to us all. The issue is not whether God is seen in the creation. It's not a problem of sight or evidence. The problem is not one even of knowledge. The problem is one of what we like or don't like. It's a, it, this is an issue of appetites and affections. Atheists aren't atheists because there isn't enough evidence. Atheists are atheists because of what they love and like to do, that they worship themselves and that they worship the lusts of the flesh. So they suppress the truth because they are ungodly. Isn't that hard for you, friend? It's been, there are times in my life where it's hard for me too. Isn't it hard when you're living your life? I remember when I was 16 and I doubted the existence of God one day, even though I was a Christian. There was one day it came to me with a force and a power and a doubt because I was being taught evolution in high school. Isn't it hard when you're living your life and you think you're doing the good things and you're naturally responding to those around you and you think you're right and, and then someone tells you that the creation is telling you that your life is all wrong and someone tells you from the word of God or preaches to you and says you need Jesus Christ and you don't say, right, I'm going to consider that. You say, that sounds ridiculous and uh, I find that distasteful and silly and I'm not even going to consider it. Um, you, you need to know that you're the same as me. You're the same as me. And the only reason I ever push God away or reject him, it isn't because I've considered it properly. It's because I don't want him to say what he's saying. I like the thing that I have and I don't want him to take it away from me. I don't want him to tell me I need to change. So please, friend, don't lie to yourself. You are not struggling with this because God hasn't revealed himself in the creation. You're struggling with this because you're the same as every other man and woman. You find sin attractive and you don't find God attractive. And your conscience tells you that. It's not only the sun and the moon that tell you there's a God. The conscience in which the law of God wrestles with you in your conscience. Your conscience knows that there's something wrong with you.
How does God want you to respond this morning to these things I've brought before you as we pull this together? How does God want you to respond? Well, he, he wants you to just leave this place aware, aware that you are without excuse and aware of the sheer amount of things that he is communicating to you. Don't leave this place with this in the back of your mind. Think about this. Leave this place looking around and looking up and looking within and do a serious analysis and come to a real conclusion. What does God want you to know? That he hasn't hidden himself from you. He says that you have heard and seen this. I'm back in Psalm 19 here. He pours forth speech and he reveals knowledge. You know something about this, friend. You hear something about this. You can see it in the creation around you. He says in verse 4, Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Their sound or their line has gone out to the whole world. That is a picture there and the reality of the fact that no matter where anyone lives in the world, whether they're next to the sea or in the mountains in a hut or living in a city or whatever they are, from the beginning of the creation, every inch of this world is covered by God's witness and testimony. Man is without excuse. Every, every culture has produced a religion because they know there's a God. It is clear. It is undeniable. And you are part of that and you are responsible for it. It's everywhere and in every corner. And that lays on you a huge obligation. You're not neutral. You'll never be able to go and stand before God and say, I didn't really know. That's not the reality. You are surrounded by it. Right now, you're surrounded by it. In your life, you're surrounded by it. You see the sunrise. You see the light. You feel its warmth. You see animals. You see other people. You see the grass grow and the fruit grow in spring and summer and fall and winter. You see it all the time. Every year you're seeing this sermon, this message and preaching from God that is constantly battering your life and your body. You cannot opt out of this. You cannot say, I don't want to be part of that. You are receiving it, and that makes you responsible. You're there, and it happens all the time. Right now, in the pew, you're without excuse. You can see me. The bones in your ear are vibrating and sending the electrical signal to your brain, and you can hear what I'm saying. Your skin and your organs are warm, and your blood is flowing. And right now, even in your cells, and in your bones, and in your skin... There are billions of cells multiplying and dividing and sending information throughout your body. Since you've been sitting listening to me, you have breathed and breathed and breathed. And your body is heaving in oxygen and sending it around your body. And your heart is beating. It's beating and beating and beating. It's alive. And it's like these heavens. It is declaring the, the glory of God and the life and wisdom and power 
and design and grace of God to you. You'll go out of here this week and say, I got through that again. Pastor Gunn preached another sermon and now I have six days without having to hear another one. But you will hear a sermon that's louder than the one in one sense that I've just preached to you. You'll hear thousands of sermons before next Saturday. Every time you go into the cupboard or the refrigerator and take something out to eat, you are without excuse. You are eating God's food. He built these animals. He built these grains. He built this food. They are highly complex factories of life that he built and you enjoy them and he made them taste good so that you could enjoy them. And yet you tell me that you don't know if you should believe in Christ. Every time you eat, it condemns you for not believing in Christ. Every time you breathe the oxygen that Christ created for you and it refreshes you, every breath condemns you until you turn to Christ. You will be surrounded and you will see all these things. You will hear all these things. They are all over the earth and man is without excuse. They are within you and around you. You're without excuse. And does God say, I hate you for being a sinner and for having a dull mind like us all and not being able to comprehend the grandeur of these things? No. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The Lord God Almighty, who is beyond this universe, always is telling us through these things, come to me. Be reconciled to me. You see the beauty, but you see the decay and the death, and you will decay and die soon. But I can put it all right. Come to me. Come to my Son. The heavens and the the expanse declare all this to you, and they pour forth speech. And when you leave this place, pouring upon your eyes and your head and your skin, and your ears, his glory is pouring forth towards you because he is telling you that you must come to him and be reconciled with him. Whoever you are, leave this place like that. Not only is it all around you in that way, but tonight, as I did last night when I finished studying, Tonight, go out when it's dark and look at what God tells us to look at. Look up at these stars and the vast expanse and look at them and you will hear the unheard voice that says, I am. I am God. You are a creature. Where are you going? Where will you end up when you meet me? Whoever you are, go out like that. And may we all behold the glory of God. Next week, we'll look at the second half of the psalm, which speaks of how he reveals himself in Scripture. Let's stand for a moment to pray. Let us pray.
our gracious and glorious God, we are fools. And there is so much that we do not know and so much that we miss and take for granted through the lies of the evil one who dulls our eyes to behold all that you've made. We ask that you would save us and reinforce to us your glory in all of these things. And even as Christians, that we would understand them and be enthralled by them. Um, And that we would be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. That we would heed your call to investigate and understand all that you have made. For in them we will see you and the work of your hand. We praise you for making us and breathing souls into us and that through our souls we can come to know you, the everlasting God, and for our bodies. But we know that there is much affliction in the body. Help us to hope. Hope in the day when you will renew all that exists and we will live with everlasting life. Confront us, O God, that none of us, that none of us would have to appear before you at the end of time to make any excuse, but that we would all see the message and believe it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat>